Let's jump, let's jump in the word. Hey, um, how many of you appreciate Pastor Luke? Didn't he crush it last week? Pastor Luke started something last week that he called Welcome to the Family. Welcome to the family. And I just thought, oh my gosh, I sat there and I took a page of notes. He absolutely crushed it. But in the New Testament, it describes us as the family of God, as Luke put it. In particular, because of Jesus paid for our sins, the Bible says that each and every one of us, it is opened the door to be adopted by God. You say, wait, why do I need to be adopted? Sin separated us from God, but then Jesus paid for our sin, which opens the door to us being adopted. And in the New New Testament, it describes us coming in and part of God's family through adoption. And when you think about a family, every family has family values or family culture. How many of you are with me on that? It's every, it, they do, they, and, and sometimes it is spoken, and it's like, hey, these are our values, and you can see it, and you can feel it, and other times you can just see it, that it's a value, and you can feel it, it's part of the culture of that particular family. We all have them. Right now in your house, you have family culture. Like I'm going to give you a great example. In our family, our family culture was number one, we loved God. We didn't ask our kids if they loved God. We just assumed they loved God. How many of you know what I'm saying? And so, and you say, well, why did you do that? Well, we just brought it, we just, they just got to watch us love God. And so, and we went to church. And so that was kind of, that was a family value. But but you know, um, some of you don't know this, but I am from a blended family. Uh, when I was uh, 15 years old, my mom got divorced from my biological father. We have eight children. She, we, they had eight kids. And then a year later, she married a guy by the name of Dan that I called dad because I was really close with him. He had seven kids. And then they decided they didn't have enough, so they had one more. So eight plus seven plus one equals, we got you beat. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, so, and, and, and so what happened is, is I'm from a blended, fa blended family, and there were very distinct differences it, it, that I noticed right away. I just noticed right away. And I'm just going to give you one for example. My biological father had third world taste buds. How many of you are with me on that? Third world taste buds means he could eat asphalt with ketchup and call it good. How many of you are with me? And be like, oh, this is just absolutely incredible. And so I was raised the first 15 years of my life, and it, he just, it, it was kind of non-existent. Food to him was number one for survival, and number two, it was, it, I, I mean, it was for taste. How many of you know what I'm saying? If you could survive on it, that's good. Taste is secondary, and that's the way that he was. It was just kind of the way that, my, that he functioned. And so when he went somewhere and there was something on sale, he would buy a trunk load of it, bring it home, and that's what we were eating for the next six months. And it was like, and you're like, well, what was it? We don't got to go here, okay? And, and you know, you think about it, in our house, there was no snacks. There was no, nothing, there was no snacks. You say, what do you mean snacks? My lunch consisted of this, two peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and a piece of fruit in a paper bag. 
And by the time I was raised in Huntington Beach, California, and so I walked to school, by the time I got to school, those peanut butter and jelly sandwiches had migrated around the orange or the apple, and now they were two, they look like giant meatballs. How many of you know what I'm saying? With the grape jelly bleeding out the outside. And you'd sit down for lunch, and kids would be trading, and I'd be looking around like, anybody, they're like, don't even go here. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They'd be, they'd, they'd be looking, and I wanted good snacks. I wanted chips. To this day, I have a chip wound. How many of you know what I'm saying? A chip wound means I got 10 bags of chips in my, in my pantry. You say, why? Pray for me. Just pray for me. And, and because we didn't have them, and so if you wanted chips... I love Susie Q's. How many of you know what a Susie Q is? I, I, how many snowballs, the pink ones and the white ones? How many of you are with me on that? You know what I'm saying? I, I, I absolutely, Almond Joys, Dr. Pepper. I was like, you know what I'm saying? But I had, to, I had to buy it myself. When my mom married my stepdad, he was a foodie. And instantly everything changed. Instantly it's like, oh my God. Gosh, I was, I mean, I was like, they would say to me, do you miss your dad? And I would say, I like the food. How many of you know what <laughs> That's probably not good. But I, was, I mean, my, my stepdad would go to, we had six donut shops. So he would go to, it was called Smart and Final, and he would buy cases of pizza crusts and five-pound bags of cheese with pastrami, salami, all this stuff. And he'd be like, well, if you guys get hungry, just make a pizza and throw it in the oven. We're, we'd, my brothers and sisters would look at me and say, what just happened? You know what I'm saying? But what it was is he had a different culture around food. And what I want to do today is I want to invite you to pull up a chair to the table. And what we're going to talk about over the next few weeks is what we're going to call family values or core values or church values. So you can pull up a chair. And I promise you this, that if you will apply these values, not only to your personal life, but your walk with God and everything else, they'll transform your life. They will totally trans. These values cause the environment to be healthy. They cause life to be life-giving, even infectious because they agree with heaven and they create an open heaven over our life. They create a sensitivity to the Lord over our life. And when there's differences, they're handled um, based on these values. And what happens is, is it creates an understanding and it creates unity in our heart and in our life. It, it creates it. So I'm just going to say that I'm going to say the four um, and then I'm going to teach on the first one. The first one is honor. The second one is faithfulness. The third one is teachable, and the fourth one is excellence in our life. But today we're going to talk about honor. What does God say about honor and living with it as a value in my life? Honor is huge in the Bible, and what the Bible says about, um, about it, it affects in how it works within our life. Is when you bring up the term honor, I'm going to give you, this is the brown driver Briggs Lexicon 
definition, the word honor here means to esteem, to be prized, to be valuable, to be precious, to be costly, to be appraised as highly valued. The Strong's renders it as this. It, it means um, properly to be heavy. Heavy meaning, wow, man, that's incredible. How many of you have ever done that before where you're just like, oh my gosh, kind of blown away a little bit. Figuratively, it means to be highly valued. Causatively, to make rare, rare. To make precious or prized. See, in the Bible, it describes honor. And a lot of us will sit here and we say, okay, I honor the Lord and I'm not minimizing that at all. But the Bible talks about honoring God this way, but honoring others this way where we have an honoring heart, where we see people as valuable. We see people as prized. They're made in the image of God, where we, the way that we treat and we interact, where I have an honoring relationship with God in his word, but equally I live in an honoring way toward others that are in my life, whether I know them or not. And what we're going to do is we're going to uh, look at a story in Mark chapter 6. If you brought your Bible, um, you can turn there, pull out your pad or your iPhone, and they're going to put it on the screen. And, um, but before we jump into that story, I want to give you a little bit of backdrop about Mark chapter 5 because it sets up Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 5, right at the beginning, is the demoniac at Gadara. Remember, Jesus crossed to the other side, and this guy came out of the tombs, lived among dead people in caves, and he was demon-possessed and pretty much dominated the area, and he late prostrated before Jesus and said, and basically, you're tormenting me, and make a long story short, Jesus cast 2,000 demons out of him, told him to go into the pigs. You remember, and then they plunged over a cliff. Well, right after that, a ruler by the name of Jairus comes to Jesus, and he says, my daughter is, is at home sick, and she's at the point of death. Will you come and heal her? And so Jesus says, I'll, I'll go with you, and I'll, I'll heal her. And in route, this woman with an issue of blood comes in behind Jesus, and she said to herself, if I just touch him, I know I'll be made whole. And so she reaches out and touches him, and instantly she's healed, and Jesus knows the difference between just the crowd and someone that places a demand on the gift in him. And so he stops and says, somebody just got healed. And the disciples were like, uh, well, hello, you can't ask who touched me. Look, everybody's touching you. And the woman came forward and, and Jesus, she was healed. And then um, in, in route to Jairus's house, his daughter dies. And so Jesus turns to Jairus and says, don't quit. Don't stop believing, just anchor, and I promise you, you'll see God. And so they get to Jairus' house, and Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. Now, how many, let me just, how many of you think the environment's a little electric right now around Jesus? People are like dead people, demon-possessed people, sick people. How many of you know what I'm saying? And then Jesus, in, in, if you can imagine, the environment is electric. In Mark 6, and this is where we're going to start reading, it says, Jesus left that part of the country, verse 1, and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. Now, 
we're going to keep reading, but hold your finger there. This is the same town that when Jesus started his ministry in Luke 4, where he stood up, opened the scroll, and read from Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he began to explain what his calling was. Well, now what you're going to see is everything that he said about himself. All these people have heard about it in his town. It says, the next Sabbath he began teaching. This is the same synagogue that he read Luke 4. He began teaching in the synagogue. And many who heard him were amazed. They asked, where did he get all this wisdom and the power to perform such miracles? Now look at this. Then they scoffed. He's just a carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simeon, and his sisters, They live right here among us. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Man, man. I don't know about you, if I was Jesus, I'd have got upset. How many of you know what I'm saying? (laughs) Look at what it says, verse four. Then Jesus told them, now look at this. A prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his own relatives and his own family. Verse five, and because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. I want you to notice something here. We just read the fifth chapter. It's going incredible. It's electric. But Jesus goes into this environment and he puts his finger on it and he said, they don't honor me here. And and notice what it said is when there's an environment of dishonor, it doesn't say that he wouldn't do a miracle. It doesn't say it wasn't God's will to continue to minister there like everybody else. But because of the environment of dishonor, he couldn't do a miracle. Think about that for a moment. That if I allow a heart of dishonor, then it limits God. I create an environment around me. Jesus said it was a dishonor thing that then led to unbelief. See, they were familiar with Jesus. His family still lived in the town. What familiarity does is it anchors on natural and forgets about God. It forgets about God. Whereas honor keeps a proper filter. Honor says, you know what? It doesn't matter what you do to me. I'm going to have an honoring attitude toward you because you're valuable in God's sight. You're created in the image of God. I'm going to have an honoring view and a relationship with God. See, any environment that has dishonor in it, what what Jesus said is God can't move there like he wants to. God can't move there. This is number one. If I don't understand and work with honor, it limits God's ability in my life. If I don't understand it and I don't work with it, it limits his ability. Just as you and I naturally gravitate to an honoring place and honoring relationships. How many of you know what I'm saying? Just as you, excuse me, you gravitate toward it, God gravitates toward honor. 
He gravitates toward it. Honor creates an open heaven over over our life. And I can almost hear somebody say, well, you know, what about, you know, they've done me wrong. What about they don't deserve to be honored? There's a difference between respect and honor. You say, what, what about, what, what, you know, they're dishonoring to me. And I get it. That's How many of you know when someone treats you with dishonor, it takes everything in you to crucify your flesh and say, God, I'm going to do this your way. How many of you know what I'm saying? Because how many of you got a, a little bit of a squirrely? How many of, your, how, how many of you know, my, sometimes my flesh barks a little bit. How many of you know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? It's like somebody dishonors me and it's, yeah. How many of you know what I'm saying? They just kind of like do you wrong, and you're just like, and and I'm learning, tamp it down, Lord, I'm going to do it your way. Are you with me? I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it your your way. It's a great question, and what we're going to do is we're going to go to number two, but um, we're going to answer that question. The greatest king that Israel ever had in the Old Testament was King David. Before David was ever a king, he was first a shepherd, and then he was a servant to King Saul. And I want to give you a little backdrop about his life before we read his scripture. When he was 15-ish, right around in there, he was a shepherd boy, and this prophet Um, gets announced that he's coming into his town and his family thinks so little of him that they don't even invite him out of the field, but they bring everybody else in to sit before Samuel, who's a prophet. And realize in their day, when a prophet came into your town, it was huge. I mean, you, they, it says that the elders met, met Samuel as he's coming in, and they said, did you come peacefully, or are you going to judge us? How many of you know what I'm saying? I mean, he, he, Samuel's the type of guy, it's like God swallowed him. <laughs> but it's like, ah! How many of you know? Samuel's like that kind of guy. So Samuel comes in because God told Samuel that you're going to anoint the next king. And so he goes to the house of Jesse, and they run all the, they don't even bring David in. They don't even, they thought so little to invite him in. And eventually he comes in, Samuel the prophet anoints him as a kid and says, you're going to be the next king. And as the story goes on, as, as they kind of forget about it and years go by and and then you remember the story of David and Goliath his brothers are on the front lines and he's just bringing bread and food and cheese to his brothers and he hears Goliath taunting the the uh the Israeli army and it, it on the inside it just wells up and you know the story he kills Goliath and and there was a promise that was made that basically whoever kills Goliath he's going to move into the king's house he's going to marry the king's daughter and their family is going to be exempted from taxes for the rest of their life how many of you would like that promise right there and 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 so he moves in and and um and he's promoted into the king's house and and um and David just becomes a warrior and he's a worship leader and everything. But the people start singing this song, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And Saul is insecure. And so Saul begins to get jealous. And all David's doing is serving Saul. But Saul begins to get jealous. And this jealousy that is left alone turns to an demonized man, Saul, who's obsessed now with killing David. 
he's going to kill David. It, and if you, if you study, David has done absolutely nothing wrong. He just wants to serve Saul. At one point, he tries to kill David so many times. At one point, David is in his court, and he picks up a javelin, and he hurls it at David. And David sees it coming and jumps out of the way, and his coat gets pinned to the wall from this javelin. How many of you know that's pretty close? How many of you are like, hey, we need a little space here. This relationship ain't working. You know what I'm saying? And so David, David flees it for his life. And what's amazing is, is if you study Saul, what you find out, if anybody is in even suspected of ever helping David, Saul has them killed, including priests. Wipes out tribes, wipes out families, wipes out communities. Every time Saul hears a report of where David might be, he mobilizes his army to pursue David in order to kill him. And I want to pick up there in 1 Samuel 24, verse 1. After Saul returned from fighting the Philistines, he was told that David had gone to the wilderness of En Gedi. So Saul chose 3,000 elite troops from all Israel and went to search for David and his men near the rocks of the wild goats. At the place where the road passes some sheepfolds, Saul went into a cave to relieve himself. Now, let me just, okay, he ain't going to the bathroom. He's going to take a nap. Okay, we think relieved. He, he goes in to take a nap. It says, but as it happened, David and his men were hiding farther back in that very cave. Now's your opportunity. David's men worship, whispered to him, today the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your, put your enemy into your power to do with as you wish. So David crept forward and cut off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe. I got my pocket knife up here. He said, that is not a pocket knife. This is the only thing I could find. <laughs> David, could you imagine? He's like, I mean, how many of you would be like, I don't need no robe. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'm going to do this myself. This guy has wronged me. This guy, is, he sneaks in, pulls his pocket knife, and cuts a little piece of his robe. And then he, look at what it says after he cuts a little piece of his robe. But David's conscience began bothering him because he had cut Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this to my Lord, the king. I shouldn't attack the Lord's anointed, for the Lord himself has chosen him. What I want you to notice is David's heart of honor. David, man, how many of you, that have been tough on you? David's heart, he's a warrior of honor. So David restrained his men and did not let them kill Saul. After Saul had left the cave and gone on his way, David came out and shouted after him, my Lord, the king, look at the honor. And when Saul looked around, David bowed low before him. Then he shouted to Saul, why do you listen to the people who say I'm trying to harm you? This very day, you can see with your own eyes, it isn't true. For the Lord placed you at my mercy back there in the cave. Some of my men told me to kill you. I mean, if you were David's men, you'd be like, shut up, shut up, knock it off. You know, don't tell him. How many of you know what I'm saying? Because it's Saul. It's like, who are your men? I want their names. <laughs> 
I just get off. <laughs> okay, look at what he said. For I said, I will never harm the king. He is the Lord's anointed one. Look, my father, at what I have in my hand. It is a piece of the hem of your robe. I cut it off, but I didn't kill you. This proves that I am not trying to harm you and that I have not sinned against you, even though you have been hunting for me to kill me. Ten years, more than ten years before this, David was anointed to be the next king to replace Saul. But he was not going to act out of dishonor. He had been used and abused by Saul so much that his life had been in danger. He had to create space and leave. But he maintained an attitude of honor. This is number two. Honor isn't based on what others do, but it's based on who I see as over my life. People aren't over your life. God's over your life. Well, they did this. God's over your life. When I see God is over my life, and I don't get focused on flesh, I don't get focused, I can, I can maintain an honoring heart toward people and toward God. David saw God is over his life, no matter what Saul said and no matter what Saul had done to him. He saw God is over his life. I think everyone in this room has been dishonored before in some capacity. I could go on and on and on. But the key is, can I just stop and say, you know what? This is just a test, and I'm not going to give in to the temptation to be dishonoring. I'm going to cultivate because I don't want to hinder myself. Number three is this. Understanding and walking in honor creates an environment around me for God to move. If I'll just stop and say, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to understand honor. And I'm just going to very quickly recap. In Acts 10, verse 1, is this Roman, off, Roman captain by the name of Cornelius. If you study, you find out he's a Gentile. He's not even a Jew. But he is honoring toward God. He is honoring toward people. He is honoring toward the disadvantaged. And the Bible says that God saw it. And he was praying. And, you know, realize this. Prior to Acts 10, Christianity was a Jewish thing. It was not a Gentile thing. It was You had to be a Jew to get brought into it. And it had drifted into that lane so much so that they were teaching grace, but the works of the law. And the headquarters was in Jerusalem. All of the disciples were Jews. And God gives Peter a dream and says, Peter, there's going to be somebody to knock at your door. They're going to bring you to Cornelius' house, and you're to tell them the way. Realize before this, no Gentile had ever this had never occurred. And so Peter goes, and he, he didn't want to go. He didn't want to go to this Gentile house. But what he did is he said, God, I'll follow you. And what I love about this is if you read this story, Peter steps in to Cornelius' house, who's a Gentile, and begins to tell him about Jesus. They get saved, and the Holy Spirit falls on them. And all of his religious friends back in Jerusalem are ticked that he went into a Gentile house, and they're all upset about it, but he began to recite the story of how it all came about. Realize this, understand, this is number three, understanding 
and walking in honor creates an environment around me for God to move. It creates an environment around me for God to move. You say, I need God to move in this area of my life. Do you cultivate honor in that area of your life? You say, I need God. To, I think we could all say this. You know, you got somebody. How many of you know you got somebody that kind of, you say, am I honoring in my relationship with them? It's difficult and it's hard, but God is saying, I move in an environment of honor. You know, you're here today, and we started today by family values. You're here, and you've never come into a relationship with Jesus. Realize that God's not wanting you to just do a spiritual two-step and say, Jesus, pray some simple prayer and live your life. He came to totally change your life. He came for you to know him in a real way, but you have never asked Jesus to come in and to be the Lord of your life. Right now is your moment. Right now. God said, you want to be part of my family? I'll adopt you. I'm not counting how many times you've screwed up or messed up. I'm counting how many times you will get back up and say, Lord, I need you. I need you. Can we stand to our feet, if you would? With every head bowed and every eye closed, you're here today, and you say, I've never given Jesus my life. I've never asked him. Or maybe you're here, and you say, I have, but I'm not where I should be, and I need to rededicate my life to the Lord. I want to pray with you right where you're at. But if that's you, this is your God moment right now to say, Lord, I want you. I need you, and I go all in with you. On the count of three, I want you to lift your hand. Say, why am I lifting my hand? I'm calling you out of just comfortably sitting there, and I'm saying, God, yes, I go all in. That's you. One, two, three. Lift your hand to the Lord. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. God is reaching out. I see those hands. Thank you, God. Yes. Yes. Yes, thank you. I want to lead us all in this prayer. Say this with me. Jesus, I believe that you're God's son. That you willingly went to the cross and allowed yourself to be crucified to pay for my sins. I'm asking you, forgive me of my sins. Come into my heart. Be the Lord of my life. I invite you. Lead my future. In Jesus' name, amen. Give God a shout.